Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Black Swan, we are exploring Jesus through the eyes of Mark's gospel. We are going to be looking at the reason why Jesus, who started off as a poor peasant from Nazareth, became one of the most influential figures in the Western world. I hope you enjoy. All right. But when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the housetop must not go down or enter the house to take anything away. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it might not be in winter. For in those days there will be suffering such as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, no and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has cut short those days. And if anyone says to you at that time, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be alert. I have already told you everything. But in those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, we're going to start this morning. I'm going to show you a little video clip. And normally, you know, I introduce these things to you guys to kind of set it up so you know what's going to happen. But this is very self-explanatory. So I'm going to play the clip, and then we're going to talk about it afterwards. So go ahead. I'm very conflicted and, yeah, skeptical. Talking to a psychic over the phone is a bit impersonal. They can't be for real, can they? We let these skeptics try California psychics, and here's what they had to say. You know, it was probably the best psychic reading I've ever had. Gosh, I got everything I could imagine from my reading. She's telling me all this stuff, and I'm like, how can you possibly know that? Call now to speak to a psychic for a dollar per minute, and if it's not the best psychic reading you've ever experienced, it's free. I wasn't sure about the relationship that I'm in, but... Now I know he's the right one. It was specific to me. I mean, she picked up on so many things that there's no way she could have picked up on. I've always had a passion for fitness, and she saw me own in my own yoga studio. Speak to a psychic for a dollar per minute. Readings are secure and confidential. If it's not the best psychic reading you've ever experienced, it's free. She had names. She had so much detail. She really just reassured me that I'm on the right path. I've never had a phone call make me so excited for the future. California Psychics. The best or it's free. Call today. Nice, huh? Gotta like that. Tell me that commercial was not geared towards women, right? Every single person in that was a woman, except for the one guy who was like, I'm gonna own my own yoga studio someday, right? (laughs) Now, I love that commercial simply because if you've ever seen other psychic commercials like that, it's always fascinating because I've wondered, you know, let's take a poll. Are there people in here, do, do you believe that psychics are real? Do you believe there's people who can see into the future and can tell you what's going to happen to you in your life. Raise your hand if you believe that there are people like that out there. Okay, we got one, two, anybody been back? No, three. Kate's back there again saying yeah. Okay, so not many, right? It's an interesting question. I was actually thinking about going to a psychic before this sermon so that I could tell you what it was like. 
Uh, because, you know, out here on Highway 14, there's like two psychics within eight blocks of each other, which you would think would not be possible. There cannot be that much market share for psychics, but apparently it's a fairly lucrative profession, and they can be eight blocks away from each other. My father, he actually went to a psychic when he was a young man, and my father told me that everything that that psychic told him has come true. The only thing that's left on the list of things that the psychic told him is when he's supposed to die. My father's supposed to die at the age of 75. He is presently 62 years old. We could sit here and argue all day long about whether that psychic actually knew what was going to happen to my father, or whether by listing all those things out, my father worked hard to achieve those goals. But it's a fascinating question, isn't it? Because if there are people who can see into the future, who can tell you what's going to happen to you, then what does that mean about the future? It means the future is set, right? It can't be changed. So it's kind of like a DVD where you watch a movie, right? You can fast forward to the end of that DVD and see what the ending is going to be like. Now the characters in the movie, they're going to get there no matter what. The question is, do you know what's going to happen at the end of the movie or is it a surprise? Now, one of the problems with this is that if it's true, then that means there really is no such thing as choice in our lives. We can't really change anything about what we're doing because ultimately what that means is is that we're going to arrive at our predetermined destination whether we like it or not. How many people like this idea? (laughs) Nobody, right? Nobody likes the idea that you're just going to arrive and there's nothing you can do about it. And the reason why we don't like it is because we want to believe that we have a choice. We want to believe that we can make decisions. We want to believe that we have the freedom to change if we want to change. Being able to do what you want to do when you want to do it is the very essence of human free will. The Bible has a very interesting take on whether or not things are predetermined. There are some scripture passages that very much promote this idea that, yes, we can change. In fact, one of the fundamental aspects of Christianity is that through God and Jesus, your life can be dramatically better and change for the better now. But then there's other scripture passages that tell us, actually, the future is set in stone. That at a certain point in time, you are going to reach this predetermined destination. And these passages, they are usually what we refer to as apocalyptic Literature. Now, that word apocalyptic, have you heard that before? You've probably heard that. Okay, so the word apocalyptic, it refers to any kind of literature that talks about the end of the world. And in fact, in this passage we read from the Gospel of Mark, this is classified as apocalyptic literature. So what it tells you is it gives you a presentation of how this world one day will end and that all of this is going to change and be gone. The day that this happens, the fancy word that we use in theology is called the eschaton, the eschaton. And that word eschaton in Greek, it literally means last, that's all it means. And so the idea is that that's the last day. So the scriptures, they have kind of this middle ground, right? You can do everything that you want to do right now to change, but eventually you are going to have to stop all that change when the end comes to be. You follow me on this so far? Okay. Throughout the centuries, there have been Christians who have attempted to predict when the end of the world is going to come. And they do this by comparing their present circumstances with the Scriptures. So, if 
all of the signs and the symbols and the scriptures match their particular situation, then they usually make a prediction that the end of the world is going to happen on X date. Over the last 2,000 years, there have been more than 100 people who have anticipated and made predictions about the end of the world that have formed large movements. Let me give you a few examples of some of the people who predicted when the end of the world is going to come. So one of the biggest ones that ever occurred is in the year 1000. So Pope Sylvester II, he predicted in the year 1000 on January 1st, does this sound familiar to you all, right, from where we were in the year 2000, that there, the world was going to end in a millennium apocalypse. This caused mass panic throughout Europe. And people were rioting, and they formed these pilgrimages. They went all the way down into Jerusalem because they wanted to prepare for the end of the world. Another example of this is in 1524, a group of London astrologers predicted that on February 1st, the entire world was going to end in a flood. And so when they said this, 20,000 Londoners left their homes and went to the top of a mountain in anticipation of being killed in this flood so that they could be saved, they could be above the waters. A Puritan minister named Cotton Mather, he predicted that the end of the world was going to come in 16. 97. When that didn't pan out, he revised his numbers upward to 17, 16. And when that didn't pan out, he revised his number upward again to 17, 36. Cotton Mather died in 17, 28, so he never had the opportunity to revise his numbers again when it didn't pan out. And even John Wesley got in on the fun. John Wesley is the founder of the Methodist denomination, and he predicted that the end of the world was going to come in 1836, and he based that on Revelation 12, 14. Now, all these people, they were alive centuries apart, and yet they all have one thing in common. They were wrong. (laughs) Those dates, they came and they went just like any other day. And so the question that we have to ask is, why were they so sure? Why were they so sure that this was the date on which the end of the world was going to come. And so, we already talked about one of the reasons why, right? One of the reasons is that they were looking at the scriptures and they were putting pieces together that they shouldn't have put together. They were taking signs from their life and they were comparing them and they said, yes, this adds up, and they made the date. But another reason is something that we've noticed in religious studies. And that's that these predictions about the end of the world, they tend to go up when people are in circumstances where they are suffering and enduring persecutions. So when you're in a situation where you can't move around freely, where you can't say what you want to say without fear of being hurt or being imprisoned or being killed, then you feel like an animal in a cage, right? Wherever our freedom is restricted, our future is limited. And when people are in situations like that, they begin looking for a way out. Now this way out... It can come through a number of different methods, but the whole point is to escape the misery that you are in right now and grasp on to that freedom that we value so much. So one of the ways that we get out of those situations is that we just run. We get away as far away as we can from the people who are trying to hurt us. Another way that we do this is that if we can't get away, we try diplomacy. We try to negotiate fair treatment from the powers that be. And then if those two things don't work, the final thing that we will do is we will resort to violence and revolution. 
to force our oppressors, bend their will to our needs. Now, in those situations where we turn to violence and revolution, almost all the time we look for a leader to lead us. Who will lead us in this revolution? Who's the person who we know in our country who led the Revolutionary War here? Who's the person? He's on the $1 bill. That's the hint, because last service, apparently people did not know this. So, (laughs) who is he? Who led our revolution? George Washington. Okay, so we look for a leader. It's why he became our president. All right, for the Jewish people, who were they looking for to lead them? Who was going to be that person? His name? The Messiah. That's who it was going to be. So the Messiah was supposed to lead the revolution, defeat the forces of evil, and establish God's kingdom on earth. Now, this scripture passage that we read today, as lengthy as it was, it's talking about this time when the Messiah is going to come. What's going to happen when the Messiah shows up? What's it going to be like when he gets here? And so he lays out a couple of different signs that you're going to see, things that are going to happen. So one thing that's going to happen is there's going to be great suffering and persecution. That's the first thing. The next thing is that the people are going to be led astray by a number of false prophets who claim to be the Messiah. And then, finally, he adds in something odd. He says that the temple is going to fall. The temple in Jerusalem is going to fall. Now, who is saying all this stuff? When we were reading this, who is actually supposed to be speaking all these things? Jesus is, right? Okay. But that's actually not what's happening. Jesus probably didn't say those things. Because what he's doing is, this was an event that was happening at the time he was writing his gospel. And he put these words in Jesus' mouth to make a prediction. So, when did Mark write his gospel? We've been talking about this. When did he write the gospel? What year? 70 A.D. Very good. Thank you, brother. Been listening. Appreciate that. So, 70 A.D. is when he writes his gospel. Four years before that, in 66 A.D., there was an event. Something major occurred. So there were 6,000 Jews in Jerusalem. And they were protesting their treatment by the Roman government. They were protesting specifically the heavy taxation they were under. And so the way the Romans responded to this was that they sent soldiers to the Temple Mount. Now, the Temple Mount, you can see this is what Jerusalem looked like at the time that Jesus was alive. Can you circle the temple for me? So that's where the temple is. It's important that, you, that you're able to see that. Okay, so they go to the temple. The soldiers go inside, and they rob the treasury of the temple, which would be like after you all give your offering here. It would be like soldiers coming in and taking your offering and just taking off with it. Then they go back out into the streets of Jerusalem. They find these 6,000 protesters, and they slaughter all of them in the streets. They kill them right there. And this violence, it caused a mass revolution. People rebelled like they had never rebelled before. And it led to a four-year guerrilla battle between the Jews and the Roman army. Now, in the midst of all of this, there were a number of leaders who stepped up. And these leaders, they were trying to lead the Jewish people to defeat this army. And many of these people, they called themselves the Messiah. And in fact, what we know from historical records is that these Messiahs, they were fighting with each other over who was the real Messiah trying to lead these people. They were going at it. 
Now, the only reason why the Jews were able to stave off the Roman government as long as they did, this army, is two reasons. One thing you'll notice, and it's hard to see this in this picture, is that Jerusalem is technically up on a hill. It's up high. And so the soldiers, they're always having to battle uphill to get into Jerusalem. And you can see there's a wall around it. So they had the advantage. The second reason is because the general who was leading the army, he got called back to go to Italy, to Rome, because there was political upheaval. So he started the war. He didn't get to finish it. He had to go deal with this thing in Italy, and then he comes back. Now, when he gets back around 70, he's tired of dealing with this situation. So what he does is he decides he's going to starve these people to death. What he does is he builds another wall all the way around Jerusalem. The idea being that no food is going to get in to this city. Now, initially, they're able to overcome this because there's all these tunnels underneath the city and they can bring the provisions in through the tunnels. But when the Roman army finds those, they destroy the tunnels. And actually down there, you can see the Mount of Olives down there. Titus, after they found those tunnels, Titus sat on the Mount of Olives and just watched as these people starved to death. That's what he did. Now you have to understand that when Mark is writing this passage in his text, he's not writing about some future event that's going to happen. This actually occurred. People were suffering in horrific, horrific ways. And you have to also appreciate that people also believed that God was going to intervene in a big way. They believed the Messiah was going to come back. Because surely God was not going to allow them to suffer in this way. Surely God would stop all of the carnage that was about to occur. Surely God would intervene and make a difference and not allow the Romans to wipe out the Jews. But that's not what happened. God didn't intervene. After a few weeks of letting them languish and starve, he instructed the soldiers to surround that wall. And then they came over the wall, and as they moved into the city, any building they came across, they burned it to the ground. Any person who was still alive and hadn't died from starvation, they killed them right there in the streets. And as they got all the way up to the top, to the Temple Mount, the very top of the hill, the last Jews were locked inside of the temple. So they burned the foundation to the ground. They actually started the foundation on fire, lit the whole thing up, and killed every single person inside. The only part of the temple that is left to this day is what is known as the Wailing Wall. Everything else was taken down, but this is the only thing that's left from that battle. You can go see it to this day, but that is all that is left from the temple from 70 A.D. After this occurred, the Roman Emperor Vespian, he declared that Judaism was no longer a religion that would be tolerated by the Roman Empire. He imposed a two drachma tax on anybody associated with the Jewish faith, and he used that money to rebuild a Roman city on top of where Jerusalem used to be. His goal was to wipe out any historical evidence that the Jews had ever lived there. And by 135 AD, they had taken the name Jerusalem off of all the official maps of the Roman government. Now, why am I telling you all this? I know every week you come here, you hear me talk about history behind the scriptures, and you're like, it's good to know, Alex, but really, what difference 
does it really make to my faith? Well, in this case, it makes all the difference in the world. Those people who I talked about at the beginning of the sermon, those people who predicted that the end of the world was going to come, they did it based on passages like the one that we read today. They did not see it as being a passage that was talking about a historical event. They saw it as a passage that was talking about something that was going to happen in the future. This belief that these apocalyptic passages are describing some future vision of the world has been present in Christianity ever since its inception, and it has caused a very distorted view of the world. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about when I mean distorted view. When I was back at my other church in Harrisburg before I came here, I went on a mission trip to Haiti. Some of you have talked about this before, so you know that I did this. I went to Haiti, and a few days into being there, we decided as a group that what we want to do is we want to put on a feast for this village where we were. We were up in the mountains, so we gave them our money. We said, go buy this food, and they came back, and we had this massive feast. We fed over 200 people in that day. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. This is a picture of when we were eating that food. What you will notice, though, is what they're eating on. They're eating on styrofoam plates. One thing you have to know about Haiti, particularly up in the mountains, is that they don't have a good trash disposal system like we do here. They don't have garbage men who are, you know, coming around, picking up, collecting garbage and taking it away. I mean, most Haitians don't even own a trash can, so clearly they're not going to be able to dispose of their waste. So what do they do when they have trash? Where does it end up? On the ground, on the land, right? So the next day, I wake up, and we're sitting there, and I look out into the fields where they grow their crops. And I see that all these Haitians have dumped all these styrofoam plates into their fields. Now, you know what's going to happen to that, right? What's going to happen? Over time, those plates are going to get packed down into the earth, and as it biodegrades, the chemicals in that styrofoam are going to seep into their food supply as it grows. So I turn to the leader of the other church who was there with us. Now, this is a church that's very fundamentalist, very literalistic about the Bible. They did not promote education because they felt that education leads to questions and questions leads to doubts, and doubts lead to your soul not being able to go to heaven because you might go to hell, right? So I go to him and I say, hey, look, I could really use the help of your youth, let's go out there into those fields, let's get some trash bags, let's collect these styrofoam plates so that it doesn't make them sick. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And I said, why not? He goes, because it doesn't matter. I said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter. Because Jesus is going to come back and wipe all of this away. And so none of this really matters. It doesn't matter that those plates are there. It doesn't matter that this could make them sick because Jesus is coming back any day and you know what? It doesn't really make any difference because Jesus is going to make it all new. I have to tell you, I about lost my mind when I heard this because you all know, I mean, you've listened to me, clearly Jesus coming back is like the last thing I think about in my faith. And the reason why is because look at all the people throughout history who have made predictions and how they were all what? Wrong. All of them. So if you're going to put your money down on something, if you want to place your bets, I would put your bets on the fact that we should probably focus on what's happening right now, not necessarily what's going to happen in the future. Because I don't think God wants us to wait 
for Jesus to come back to fix the poverty and oppression that we see in the world. These are problems that we created. These are human problems, right? There are problems. We can fix them if we want to. This is the shirt. This was on the back of the shirts that we wore to Haiti when we went there. And the idea behind this was that we were not bringing Jesus to Haiti. We were going there to experience Jesus. Because Jesus is already in those people. And we are going to do what Jesus asked us to do. Which is to serve the least and the lost in this world. So my message to you this morning is actually quite simple. We don't know what the future holds. But what we do know is that there's people all over the world right now who are suffering and struggling and in need of someone to save them. And you want to know the number one thing that Jesus talked about when he was here on this earth? The number one question he asked was, what do you need me to do for you? In other words, how can I help you right now? Should this not be the question that we are asking every single day? Should this not be the thing that we are striving to do to be Jesus' hands in the world? To serve those who are incapable of serving themselves? To give them the opportunity to be powerful and to raise themselves up? I mean, should we not be aiming to do this? In my opinion, this is what we are here to do. We are here to build God's kingdom. And you know what? Sitting around and waiting for Jesus, it's not going to happen. That kingdom's going to be way far off. So you know what? We are here to do that. We are not going to wait. We are going to build God's kingdom here and now. So may this be the end of the world as we know it. And may we be the ones who are going to change it. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.